Welcome to Rogue Chemist. I'm Jenna Flogeris, former lab rat turned digital nomad. Rogue Chemist chronicles my misadventures around the world, including the people I've met and the lessons I've learned along the way. Cape Town, South Africa, was my home base for 11 months between the end of 2021 and January of this year. During that time, I befriended Milton Shore, an actor and writer with a vivid imagination and knack for articulating his life experiences and transforming them into art. He's an incredible storyteller who's written two novels to date, Strange Fish and Man of the Road, and his acting career has spanned both theater and film. Milton is also one of the most empathetic and philosophical people I know, and I deeply value his friendship. I've had many in-depth conversations with him up to now, and I'm excited to share one of these with you. Milton, you've dabbled right. in a lot of different things in your mm -hmm. career up to now, including writing, both fiction, written two novels so far, and That's you've written right. a lot of short stories too, uh, nonfiction as a freelance writer, mm -hmm. uh, as well as acting, directing, producing, plays and films, drew you to the arts as a career path. Wow. I actually have a, a story that I trot out quite often, um, but it's true. So this is the story and I quite like it. Um, I did not grow up in an artistic environment at all. In fact, I grew up in a small fishing town in a rural area in South Africa. And um, I was given a hand-me-down computer and for whatever reason, I just started writing stories. I did typing at school, so I happened to know how to touch type. So I literally have this sort of my origin story, like a, <laughs> you know, like a superhero. My origin story as a writer or an artist is one night I was typing away and it was quite late. And so the world was quiet and I was in a rural place. So it was dark. And um, it was just me and this blue light of this computer screen. And I was fascinated by how the story and these characters were just sort of appearing. And because that's how it is for me, writing. Like, I mean, it's like, how do you have an idea? It just sort of comes to you, right? So these things, these these stories were just, the scenario was just sort of climbing out of the screen and I was reading it as it was happening. And I felt so connected, peaceful, home. Um, I think I've just been chasing that feeling since that one night where I just had this moment of clarity of, I love this. And I mean, <clears throat> I've been through a lot of, I mean, different relationships, different living situations, different phases of life. And I've always been conscious of how nothing really sticks for me. I'm quite a sort of a wanderer in a way. But writing has always stuck. That's never been a problem, ever. So, yeah, I just somehow I was and I was so, so lucky to discover that because I know many people that just don't have a thing that they're passionate about. And it's not their fault because I didn't choose to be passionate about something. It, I just, it just happened. And I'm so lucky. I've always, I've always had something to do. Yeah. 
and um and theater and film so you went you studied this in university yeah so i changed schools near the end of my high school career i moved from the rural town to the city and then my new school offered drama mm-hmm. or theater and i really I mean, I didn't really know what that was. Obviously, I knew what the word meant, but I didn't know what the subject was. But I thought it was interesting, sounded interesting. And literally, the first class, I just knew exactly what they meant. And it was the same feeling, like, this is me, no question. I'm supposed to be here. I understand what is being said. And um, I mean, I... Pretty much failed everything in my final exam. Didn't fail, but very near everything except English and drama, where I just got A's or you know top marks. Because you know it's just something that I was born with. It's kind of interesting because writing is quite introverted, but acting is very extroverted. Do you still? I guess that leads you to my next question. Mm. Which is more comfortable to you? I guess yeah. writing or acting uh and which is the most challenging and why you know um it's a great question and i'll start with just your comment on acting is less introverted than writing i think it's 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 actually in a way it's not because i'm someone that i don't i don't want attention drawn to me when i'm in a social situation Unless I'm in charge, right? So that's what acting is. It's this person who's got all the attention on them, but they get to define the rules of engagement. Mm. So in a way, it's extroverted, but it's also quite introverted. It's, It's quite like intimate and no, no, no. Let me be with myself and let me show you these Things that I've figured out on my own in the dark. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't like. I generally avoid groups. I prefer one-on-one. So it's interesting. And then in that, like, so which is more challenging? Which do I prefer? <clears throat> it's difficult to say because acting is quick and writing is long. So. I'm busy writing my third novel and I've been working on it for at least a year and a half because that's just how long it's taking. But acting, you you got to step out and do it. And depending on the format, if it's theater, okay, you practice, you have a rehearsal period. But if it's film, you essentially don't. You've just got to step out there and make it happen. So in some sense, maybe a film is... It's more thrilling. It's much more scary. You know, the nerves run much higher. Um, But then the high of sort of conquering your fears and nailing it in like a pretty tricky situation is huge. Mm -hmm. Whereas writing, I'll be working on something for months and months. And then it's like reaching the end of a novel, right? This Mm -hmm. has been a two-year journey. And I find the end always comes unexpectedly. Mm. I always think I've got another 40 pages to go. And then I'll suddenly realize, oh, my God, this is the end. And I'll write the last sentence. But that last sentence was the same as the 25th sentence. It's just a sentence. 
So it's quite an anticlimax. It's just, <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Okay, I've got 200 pages here and a whole story. And like if a tree, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, I mean, or if no one hears it fall, did it fall, right? <laughs> You're sitting there on your own and did I did that happen? <laughs> um, it's so it's very different sensations. I, I suppose I'd end up saying I love them equally, and I'm glad I can do both. Mm. Yeah. Um, do you think the sense <clears throat> of satisfaction is somehow deeper with a novel because it's like self-driven? Uh, it's it's a labor of love. It's um, it's it's all of your own creativity. Um, yeah, is there a difference? The the satisfaction is it giving you some kind of different sense of yeah. satisfaction. Again, that's interesting because a novel's so sprawling, it's hard, like, it's not often, someone was asking me the other night or uh, recently, uh, what's it like, you know, having an, a book out there that people read and then they, they talk to you about it? And my answer was, it's not, it, I don't think it's like what a person would think it is because I didn't write it. I facilitated it. Mm. It's that thing of, honestly, I didn't like make it up. These ideas came to me and then I did my best to organize it. Right. So in a way I read it also. Mm -hmm. I also read the story. And then people come to me and say, like, whatever they say, as if I am the creator of it. But in, I'm not, actually, because I also read it. Um, I mean, that might sound kind of abstract, but it's it points to, like, for me, this sort of strangeness of it's not often that I'll read something I've written and be able to see it for what it is because I was there every step and I know like which sentence I rewrote a hundred times. Um, yeah. So it's like the moments of satisfaction, they're so fleeting. It's hard to pin them down, but mm -hmm. I think like what I love about it is it's, it's like those moments of flow, like, when I know that is a fucking good idea, right? Like, yes. And, and it's because I didn't stop. Like what I enjoy is I, I always, I want the story to tell me what it is. I don't want to tell the story what it is. And I have this kind of an instinct that might be a curse or it might be a blessing, but it, it ends, it makes me spend months looking for something that feels like organic or unique because I can, I feel like I can smell the bullshit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when you're watching a movie and you go, oh, well, okay, boy meets girl, you know, that they're going to fall in love and at about 45 minutes, they're going to break up and then the friend's going to say something, and, you know, that feeling of, oh, I, I've read this before. I don't want that. So often that ends up being, slaving away like it's kind of like you had a coal face just mining for ages in the dark not knowing what you're going to find but knowing there has to be something otherwise what's the point and then eventually finding something brilliant 
And it's not that I made the brilliant thing, but I put the work in to dig the whole time. And that brings, it's, it's the same as like, I don't know, um, falling in love. Like to me, it's a, it's this moment of uh, almost makes me feel like God is real. Like, wow, I'm so special that this person exists for me. Wow. I am real. You know, that's what it's like. Like, wow, this idea. And I also know that it's only really me that would think of that idea because it's my personality. Um, so, okay. So that's writing. It's this long, strange sense of satisfaction. Then film, on the other hand, that's like an athletic satisfaction. Mm. It's like you just nailed like a punch combination or something like that. So it's just so different. Yeah. But then at the same time, I, I just had an experience where I was in a movie and I, I played the biggest role I've ever played. And it was just a role that was written for me. Uh, not that it really was, but uh, I just happened to be a guy that can play this guy. And because um, normally, I, normally I play very small roles in very big productions. So that's athletic. You go in and you've just got to be professional and you've got to just get it right. But here, it was a local movie, so I was able to tell more personal stories, and I was asked to not put on this mask of, okay, I'm some kind of American, or I'm some kind of Brit, or I'm some kind of, I need to be myself, I need to be from here, from South Africa, from Cape Town. And what was profound for me about that was, because of course, you want to fill the character with as much as you can which means being able to go off the script. It, it means, you know, what are you going to do in any given moment? Like, okay, the scene is you got to walk in and drink the coffee and say hello. But how are you going to do that? And everyone's going to do it differently. And just like in life, everyone does it differently. And it's not something you really should think about, just drink the coffee and say hello. But I discovered that I had a lot to show because um, this role happens to be, happens to fit. And I don't often get the chance to express myself honestly. Normally, my job is to not express myself honestly. And that was this deep sense of satisfaction. And the satisfaction was all those hours of like sitting at the coal face that I was talking about have paid off. Because I discovered that I know what I'm doing <laughs> because of all the work I've put in. So, yeah, once I don't know. Uh, neither is better. Um, they're both amazing. What makes a good story then? For me, because <laughs> like, what is art? You know, uh, for me, it boils down to. Do I care about the character that I'm watching? Do I care? You know, do I care about what I'm watching? And generally that means do I care about the character? Um, and it's pretty much that. Is it honest? And do I care? Mm -hmm. And then, like, okay, I watched Oppenheimer the other night. 
thought it was such a load of crap. <laughs> I haven't Why? seen it again. <laughs> I didn't care about Oppenheimer at mm. all. I mean, it's the most beautifully made movie. Of course it is. But it's just three hours of like trying to care about this guy I just did not care about. Mm. Um, so for me, what makes a good story is I need to understand why I love it. Mm -hmm. Why do I love this character? Why do I love this idea? What is interesting about it to me? And then I've got to be able to hone in on that so that it's strong, so that the reader or the watcher can feel it too. And then that's it, you know. And I, I think um, I have this little theory that all the most successful stories are love stories in some way, that love is at the heart of it. And if, if love isn't there, it just becomes empty. Mm, and, harder to empathize. And, yeah. yeah, and that can be surprising. Like, um, I think of Friends and Seinfeld. These two very contrasting shows that were on at the same time that are still probably the biggest TV shows. Everyone still watches them. And it's easy to see how Friends is about love. Like, these people love each other, right? They're friends. But, and then why is Seinfeld so successful? Because well, it's funny and all of that. But no, I, to me, it's like, no, but Seinfeld is also a love story because the whole point of the show is these four freaks love talking to each other. They're just sitting in a coffee shop talking crap. <laughs> and, and that's why you love it because you love how Jerry loves Elaine and Elaine like hates George, but she also loves George because Jerry loves George. And everyone loves Kramer because he's Kramer. And so we love everybody. So actually, I think what makes a good story is, is if you can somehow nail the feeling of love within a situation of mm -hmm. someone growing, you know. Do you apply this to your story writing as well? I, I do. Um, yeah, it's become what for me is necessary. But it's, uh, there's always exceptions, you know. There's no rules. There's just things that have worked before. So it's probably a good idea to start with those. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, I think of the, a storyteller's talent is, in fact, it's, it's presentation of information. And so you've got to understand the information. So really, the talent of a storyteller is to understand what the audience is watching. Because here's a tableau of like, I'm looking out my window and there's a street and there might be someone walking past. So I would see maybe that he's got a uh, broken cell phone, but someone else might see that he's got new shoes on. Whatever the case is, like the storyteller needs to know how to direct the meaning of what's being said by understanding what people are likely to understand. Um, I actually forget what your question is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that pretty much answered it. Yeah. Your favorite character so far. It sounds like it was maybe the last one you played. Yeah. As you he, were able um, to bring yeah. down. So it's a movie called Diamond Status. Mm -hmm. And my... Um, Quick pitch for it is that um, 
It's like a lock, stock, and two smoking barrels set in Seapoint, Cape Town. A mm-hmm. Jewish lock, stock, and two smoking barrels set in Cape Town. And I play an Afrikaans Terminator. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm literally your classic, stereotypical, funny Afrikaans farmer guy, except I'm also literally a Terminator. So um, it's it's hilarious. And it was an amazing experience. Um, part of what I had to do was dive into the middle of the ocean in False Bay, which is the point on the globe where National Geographic shoots the footage of sharks <laughs> out of the water. And I had to jump into the sea in the middle of the night, like out in the deep ocean. <laughs> so yeah, it was a great, great adventure. And that's definitely been the highlight. And I can't wait. It comes out in January. It's going to be on Amazon Prime. Okay. I'm definitely Prime. watching that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm. How has your South African heritage influenced your work as both an actor and an author? How important is it for you to present South African viewpoints, issues, themes uh, in your creative work? Mm. Um, It used to be much more important to me than it is now. Um, I think, I suppose a person goes through sort of phases of learning your craft and when I was younger it was all about like being able to boldly talk about who I am and what I experience and of course you know South Africa with our apartheid history I mean apartheid ended when I was um, just starting high school so I'm someone who experienced both worlds as a child and um i've always like been proud like fiercely south african because it's such an interesting place like um there's a lot of tension here because we come from this society where it was law for people of different racial groupings to have different opportunities in the world and that's something that everyone bought into. Like it's it's this massive, um, it's the soil that we grow out of, and it's like vastly different today. But it's it's our stories are incredible. This Cape Town, the city that I live in, um, there's so many sites of we had a civil war. You know, this is where these legendary figures like took on the police. This is where. So-and-so was assassinated. This is where Mandela made that speech. Um, So, yeah, I'm very proud to be South African and I'm very inspired by this country. And like, I, you know, in some, like it, it, it would technically be possible for me to live elsewhere in the world. You know, many people make that choice. Obviously, we're a third world country and it seems to be getting worse than better. We don't have reliable electricity anymore. Like nothing really seems to be getting better infrastructure wise. And if, if you're smart, you'll probably go, well, that means in 10 years, it's going to be this much worse than it is now. So I should probably get out. But at the same time, for me as a writer, there's nowhere else I'd rather live because this is such an inspiring place. Um, you can head out and 
like road trip to any incredible vista, ocean, mountain, desert, and like experience multitudes of cultures. And we are all enmeshed in our own past. Like I might not understand another South African's language, but we know each other. We know who we are and how we are. And it's profound. So nowadays, it's not important for me to tell a South African story necessarily. It's important for me to just tell a true story. And in fact, my the current novel that I'm writing is set out of South Africa. Um, so yeah, and I just and it's a challenge for me, and I hope I'll be able to give it the same authenticity that that my other stories have had. But um yeah, I'm I'm very conscious of like how lucky I am to come from here because this is a, it's like strong soil, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thank you. You're one of the most philosophical and self-reflective people I know. What are a few of the most important life lessons you've learned so far? Um well, if I look at um where I am today and like what I'm currently dealing with, I wish I believed that it's not important to win all the time. It uh, causes so much trouble in my life in just small ways of me going, you know what? No, that's not right. I need to insist on what's right. Like, how the hell do I know what's right? And it it causes problems. And so uh, I wish I maybe had been a bit gentler. But at the same time, I'm I'm a fiery person and I would always be myself, you know. So that's one thing. But the main thing that I like, I wish I'd been taught, I think it would have helped me a lot, is um, to think more long-term. Because being in the arts, my early years were all about I'm just about to make it. I'm just about to crack it. This show is going to put me on the map. And what the map means is this show is going to give me a career. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about being famous. It's about mm-hmm. being able to do what you love at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And so I spent years and years like operating at a deficit of putting everything into one show, but because I wasn't thinking long-term, I also wasn't able to see what I'm, like, understand what I was making. Because it's, you know, it's important to understand the world as well as the art. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to understand, like, the place it's, you've got to understand your audience too, let's say. I feel like if I had known that I should be thinking in sort of five-year like blocks. It would have changed a lot of things because I would have been able to work much smarter, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. without – and, of course, it's not about like um, uh, compromising quality or anything. But, yeah, I just I just had this experience of of just putting everything in to things that probably were kind of doomed from the start because 
they weren't from a like a wiser perspective or a more informed perspective of well, what's going to work and what isn't going to work, and or more than that, maybe is this going to work here, or maybe I should go somewhere else and do it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll say that uh, I think it's it's really important um, for especially like a young artist to just have a sense of. Okay, well, what is my longer-term goal and what will it take to get there if it doesn't happen tomorrow? And so how do I, how can I do that? So that's that's part of where I am with novel writing is I've decided that this is a this is a long-term thing that I'm doing. And um, you know, it's about consistency over time, because of course there's always the hope of suddenly the spark is gonna catch. But you know, I've learned it might not. Life just mm-hmm. is not. It's not a Hollywood movie. It can be. And that's why we have those movies. But it mostly isn't. And, you know, you've got to be tough and smart. So, yeah, that would be my main thing. Is that possible to just think a bit more longer term? And what do you need to do to be able to think that way? Because I just couldn't when I was younger. I was just too impulsive. And, yeah. Yeah, long-term thinking is definitely a skill. I'm not the best at it either. Um, But yeah, I guess with experience, you know, Mm. it comes. On your deathbed, (laughs) Ah. (laughs) what realization uh, do you want to have on your deathbed? Um, What do you have? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Uh, What would make you feel fulfilled in the end? Well, yeah, what would make me feel fulfilled in the end is, um, I yeah, I'm, Legacy to me is just makes no sense because I'll be dead, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, what does that matter? But I think, I think it's just for me what it is is this feeling of did I, did I like, did I take what I was given and do my best with it? And so, how well did I live? And I often ask myself this question, like. I don't know if you know, uh, there's this writer, Carlos Castaneda, who's my favorite. Probably told you about him before. <laughs> you have. And he, he talks about that death is always right with you, standing just behind you and behind your left shoulder. And at any point, death is going to reach out and just tap you on the shoulder. And that is then, that's, that's it. And you never know when that's going to happen. And to me, that's such a wonderful thing to think of because immediately then I ask myself, well, am I wasting this moment? Okay, but then what is waste? At base level, it's am I being present? Am I aware Mm -hmm. of how lucky I am to be alive and how miraculous this moment is? Like we are talking, (laughs) I'm in Cape Town and you're in Sarajevo, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And uh, we popped out of the cosmos somehow. I mean. I don't know what's going on. It's it's amazing. But then further than that, like I've been going through stuff recently and the question then is, well, what's important? And then the answer seems to come back. Love is important. Love is going to be what's left. If you're on your deathbed, you're not taking a nice car with you, but you are taking a relationship with you like a feeling of a relationship, you know, a feeling of, yeah, I helped someone else. Like there's, there's nothing that makes any more sense 
to me, life is can you can you discover yourself and therefore your own freedom? Mm-hmm. Your freedom to live, your freedom to live authentically as you, because that's satisfying. That's meaningful. And then the best you can do is like help others to find themselves and their meaning when possible. Um and that's, I mean, that would generally be the theme of my work. It would be self-discovery and um, overcoming and freedom. And hopefully in some way that is my contribution to that. Hopefully my books would inspire some kind of, well, yeah, where am I? Um, so that would be it. I think it would finally be like, did I love well? And you, you don't have to love a person. You could love writing. You could love traveling like a passion let's say yeah did it and and if the answer is yes then then well done you know yeah that's that's a great answer thank you let's shift to something different for a moment okay <laughs> martial arts we have this Ooh. in common you yes. brazilian jiu-jitsu diligently yes came from yes. a class uh, at one point, or maybe still in some capacity, you worked for South Africa's UFC equivalent, EFC, Ooh. Extreme Fighting Championship. Is this what got you into BJJ? Uh, and what do you love about the sport? What has it taught you? So I was um, my late 20s or early 30s, and I was like fat and unfit and depressed and sick on the tail end of sort of failing as a theater maker and having various health issues. And I was back living with my mother, (laughs) you know, your classic success story, 31 living with your mom. And I thought to myself, okay, I can't do theater anymore. What can I do to actually earn money? And I thought, well, I can write quite well, you know, Probably I could get people to pay me to write if I wrote things people wanted to read, right? So then I just started going to bookshops and looking at magazines and writing down editors' addresses and generating tons of idea stories for magazines. And next thing you know, Sports Illustrated emailed me saying, hey, do the MMA story. And I'm like, I had no idea anything about MMA. This was 10, 11 years ago. So in South Africa, at least, still a very young sport. But EFC, Extreme Fighting Championship, was just starting and it was was pretty vibrant. So that led me to writing, covering an EFC event and being embedded in a fight team, which is within the gym I still train at here in Cape Town called Pride Fighting Academy. I remember I had I did a training session with them I did. I wrestled when I was a teenager, well, in primary school, and I played rugby. So I've always loved, I've loved sort of physical, kind of combat sort of sports. But I, I was, like I said, I hadn't really exercised in years. And I did one training session, and remember the next day I woke up, and even the soles of my feet hurt. That's how like banged up I was just from heavy exercise. And at the same time, I felt so good. I just felt so alive. It was literally that feeling of, this is how your body is supposed to be used. It's supposed to be alive. It's supposed to hurt. You know, it's supposed to be challenged. 
So yeah, I wrote that article and it and it it was well received, and then it led to me moving to Johannesburg and being working with EFC, which was incredible. I spent two years behind the scenes writing the stories of the fighters. It was a dream job. I was literally my job was to sell the fights. And I discovered that the way you sell a fight is you get the audience to care about the fighter. And how do you do that? Well, you tell their story. So how do you do that? You ask the fighter, what are they most afraid of? And they'll say, losing my family. And then you say, great, show me your family. <laughs> tell me about your family. Cool, let's see you training. And now tell me about how you're fighting for your family. <laughs> All right? yeah. And then you show people that. And yeah. then it's gold. Like you love the guy. And then you have to watch his fight. And mm -hmm. if you've done well, actually the audience loves both guys. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you know? really. it's true. Um, so, yeah, martial arts has like given me a career and a lifestyle. Awesome. I ended up writing a film script, um, like a Rocky in, in, in Africa sort of story in MMA, and that's currently under development, which is very exciting. Really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't say too much about it, and it's been a long year's process, but it is happening, and right now, there's a lot happening. It's very exciting, um, but also, it's led me to training, and now I am I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm a purple belt, which is such a big deal for me because I had my first day where I was so scared of everyone. And now I'm like one of the senior guys and I just seem to know what I'm doing. And I'm the guy that's like, you can never tap him. But if someone does tap me, it's such a big deal, but it's just so much fun. Like I'm the guy that used to fuck me up every day, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> the tables uh, are turned, yeah. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I, I just think martial arts, especially Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, because of the belt system, um, Whereas like in boxing or, I mean, I don't know, Muay Thai, you know, you don't, maybe it doesn't matter that you don't have a grading system. Maybe, maybe you grade just naturally by sort of having a fight and, and having a high level fight. Probably maybe that's true. But in, in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like I, I started doing that as a fairly broken male, but not a man. Right. And I learned to be a man. And and I don't mean like uh, I am a man, and so I learned to be myself. Mm -hmm. Like if you were a woman, your experience would be yours. And it's you know it's not about okay, this will teach you to be a man. It'll teach you to be you. And I needed to learn to be a man. And what that means for me is I learned to both discover my own power and then also discover compassion because your coach who could literally kill you. And, you know, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I don't know, maybe more so because, like, you it's very you can very, like, specifically kill someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, and I, if I roll with my, my coach, I, there's nothing I can do against him. I can't do anything. He could kill me if he wants, but all he does is gently show me how to get better. And so there's this constant sense of, what I'm given, what is taught to me, I teach to the next because that's also the only way I get better. So there's this system of constant progress where 
you learning both moves, but also not morals, but character. I mean, you can have your own morals, but you've got to be tough to get a stripe and to get a new belt because it literally asks how much did you suffer? A belt doesn't, doesn't mean how good you are. Mm-hmm. It means did you suffer enough? Yeah. yeah. And having suffered creates character and then camaraderie. Like, And also I think like shedding the ego, that happens pretty quickly in a martial arts gym, Yeah, which I like too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's so many, so many pros to training martial arts. Mm. They reported Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg um. fight, <laughs> which may or may not happen. If it goes down, who do you think would win that? I don't know if you've if you've watched either of them train on on yeah. the clips. On I mean, I'm such a Joe Rogan little <laughs> little <laughs> minion, so I'm I'm pretty aware of what's going on. But I tell you, it's actually. Because you you sent me your questions through, and I didn't prep for them, but I did read them, and I read this question, and then I was idly thinking about it earlier, and it suddenly occurred to me, you know what? The reason I don't like this situation is because these guys are billionaire geniuses, and now they also want to have a fight. <laughs> you know, us normal people, we get to train martial arts and at least kind of seem tough or something and like carve out some little highlight in our world. Mm -hmm. But these like kings, Mm -hmm. now they also want to, you know, be your everyman. And I actually realized it's a bit irritating actually. Like, come on, stick to your Mm -hmm. rocket ships. And, (laughs) but that said, I think um, definitely Zuckerberg because he's been training Mm -hmm. for ages and he trains consistently and he knows what he's doing. And he's probably like a fairly badass late blue belt by now. Okay. Musk, uh, from what I understand, he's quite a big, strong guy. But I'm pretty sure he's not training as consistently. And that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. So definitely Zuckerberg. Okay. But screw those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like BJJ has become like the, the intellectual, the intellect's choice sport I, I don't know among the academics they all train jiu-jitsu yeah that's just from my observations yeah well, but I mean you're a striker so you're a bit you know you're a bit uh CTE'd in the head so <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. oh I don't want to think about it too much let's shift to travel ah you've been a bit of a nomad um at different points in your life uh, hitchhiking, in particular, mm-hmm. was your preferred way of traveling. Yeah, um, you've hitchhiked extensively, not only in South Africa but uh, in some of the neighboring countries, like Namibia, Botswana. I think you hiked up to Victoria mm. Falls and Zambia, yeah. uh, as well as in Europe and Australia. You've written a lot about your hitchhiking adventures. Mm. Where was your favorite place to hitchhike, and why? Yeah, I think. Um... Australia, well, Australia comes to mind as I, you know, the one, to my mind, the one dangerous thing about Australia, at least not Northern Australia, is the serial killers. What? Yeah. (laughs) Australia has actually got like a rich serial killer history, right? They've got quite a few famous serial killers. I didn't know that, but... uh, their trade and, and and quite a bit like picking up hitchhikers. Well, weren't like people in prison there from Europe and like don't they have like a ton of criminals from 
the get-go over there. Yeah, but that is really, that's that's just not racist, but it's whatever the equivalent is, Jenna. <laughs> that's just wrong. And I mean, I bet you those criminals were put on those boats because they stole a loaf of bread because they were hungry. <laughs> yes, and true. they couldn't okay. pay the they couldn't pay the tax man. We're, we're gonna accept <laughs> it. But I didn't know that they have a high incidence of serial killers. That's news. Yeah, that's it's the one kind of because you know, the perception is Australia's got such dangerous wildlife. Mm-hmm. But I've I've got family that have been there quite a lot. And my experience is that it's the it's the mildest, safest place I've ever been. Um but I, I'm not counting sort of northern Australia, sort of Darwin, you know, up there mm. where there's crocodiles eating mm. sharks, you know. Um, so I went to Australia and I was going to, my plan was to hitchhike from Adelaide to Uluru, which is like 1,500 kilometers or so to the middle. And people were just like they couldn't handle the idea when i would tell them this is my plan like are you crazy you're gonna die there's no question the serial killers are just gonna torture you and cut your ears off and you're gonna be a documentary in six years and also you're gonna just stand in the desert for days and days and you're gonna die of thirst so i got dropped off and got a first lift within half an hour. And then, I mean, I made a, it was just one of the easiest hitches I've ever done. And one of the best, like uh, this guy picked me up, Dave Mott, who is a, if you've seen the movie Chopper, he looks like Chopper Reed. So he looks like your stereotypical <laughs> Australian gangster. I mean, he's okay. got this big sort of mutton chops, okay. his matte bushy moustache. He's a tow truck driver. This guy, I was in this little town in the outback. I mean, it's just nothing. Standing there and he zooms past and I'm like a seasoned hitchhiker. So I was just enjoying standing there and I had no resentment that this car didn't pick me up. Um, you know, you, you learn like hitchhiking is you just take take it as it is. And then I see the car pulls off in the distance and comes back. And then this very menacing like bearded individual gets out full of tattoos and looks at me and uh, says, yeah, I'll get in. And then slowly starts talking and says, yes, he picked me up because he liked the way he liked my reaction to him ignoring me. Like I just, I was just cool with it. And he kind of liked that. So he was interested in me. And then we spent, oh man, six, seven hours driving to his town of Kuba Pedi which is this opal mining town where they all live underground because it's so hot. So we arrive at his town at one in the morning, and then he takes me on a tour of the town. Like he takes me to the underground church and the little community hall. Um, and, and then he lets and tells me these stories about um, like illegal op- opal mining. Like everyone who lives there, they all have their own claim that they work on the weekends because you can just strike it lucky. Mm, cool. You can just, you know, pick up a diamond basically and it's a few thousand. So, and they all build their homes underground. So you can hear sometimes if people are mining illegally because you can hear scratching in the earth. <laughs> but it's all this like Wild West like miners' rules, like definitely you'll find a body in a car 
down a mine shaft mm-hmm. that has clearly been there for five years because somebody broke the rules mm-hmm. and it was dealt with privately. Mm-hmm. So he introduced me to this whole fascinating, like underground sort of tunneling sort of story. Um, and then eventually dropped me off on his claim. He said, look, he, his rule is he can't invite strangers into his home because he has daughters, but I'm welcome to sleep on his little claim. So he took me to this like, you know, open area just outside the town. It was a bright full moon. Full, 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 so that there's shadows and everything is white. It's just white rock. And um, I set out my sleeping bag and it's hot. Oh, man, it was magnificent. And then it started raining. Like cloud came over and it rained. And it didn't rain hard, just, just enough to just be amazing. So Australia was good. But I think... How long ago was that? Hitchhiking? That was... Um, I think about seven years ago. Mm, okay, not too long ago. Maybe eight. Maybe eight. Yeah. And then, but now recently, last year, I hitchhiked to a town called Bloemfontein, which is a thousand kilometers from Cape Town. And so nowadays, I I hitchhike probably every three or four, every two to four years, I end up going on the biggest journey. It seems to kind of build up, and then suddenly, okay, it's time. But as I get older, I get more afraid, you know, because um, I'm more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So setting out this time and as well as the country keeps changing, inflation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after the pandemic, now there's homeless people everywhere where they weren't before. There's shacks in the open park just outside my window here. It's, uh, you know, you can, you know, it's a different environment. So it seems like it might be more, a more dangerous environment. So this last hitch, I went out and I'm standing on the main highway and I'm like shitting myself, essentially, as one does before a big adventure. And then it just turned into the most blissful four or five days I've ever had. Mm. Like every lift just just rolled one to the other. Nice. Everyone was awesome. I got picked up by Every different kind of person, mm-hmm. from your lowliest truck driver to like your richest mom and son, from like this uh, Indian family with with some kind of industrial fortune. I mean, they're driving the newest, top of the range, very expensive car, but they're the most chilled people. And the son's just smoking bongs, <laughs> and the mom's, you know. And they would have taken. I, I kept having to tell lifts to drop me off just somewhere because otherwise they were going to take me all the way to my destination and that was going to be boring. <laughs> uh, you know, it needed, it was too easy. So yeah, that was phenomenal. Do you think this willingness to pick up uh, hitchhikers is uh, maybe not unique to South Africa, do, but do you think it's um, something uh, about South Africans? What, why do you think it's easier there. No, well, okay. There's one big factor which is here, and at least in southern Africa, but I assume it's in most sort of poorer areas. A form of hitchhiking has become public transport. Mm. So people okay. will stand on the side of the road with some money in their hand, and then that. people will pick them up and uh, get their petrol covered. Yeah. So, and I always used to be 
like that phenomenon only started happening in my late teens when I just started hitchhiking far distances. And I was always very against it coming from your sort of Western sort of fairy tale of hitchhiking. You know, it's, it's like the Jim Morrison's in the desert and it's just about a write like the most amazing album and have this experience and he's a you know you pick up the hitchhiker because he's a poet and then I started seeing people saying yeah but how much are you going to pay me and then it just yeah. but slowly I've come to understand no man you you respect people this is how people get around and um yeah you could be try and be a purist about it but for what? <laughs> so I, it was so easy because often I paid, but the payment it just became like, often it was sort of the thing of like, no, no, you can't pay me. You're a writer and you're on this like, like life journey. But then I end up giving him probably double what he would normally have gotten because I have money. Yeah. I think it's utterly wrong to be in a, a poor environment with someone with more than they have and then take advantage. Yeah, I, I have the same philosophy, actually. Um, no. I mean, I've hitchhiked only a couple times and I think it's different as a woman. I'm not sure if I would attempt that in South Africa or not. No. Um, yeah, yeah, I've only done it, you know, here and there, tiny little towns where I felt like very certain that I would be fine. Mm. Not yeah. for big journeys. Not yet anyway. Yeah. You, you, but but just to add to that, you because you asked, um, why do I think it's easy in South Africa? Like, I don't think it's easy. I think it's the same everywhere. I've mm. I've gotten lifts in the worst spot, mm. like standing on a bend on a highway mm-hmm. where there's nowhere to stop, and someone just like I've learned hitchhiking. It's not about uh, what the prevailing attitude says it's it's about the moment Mm -hmm. Uh, because you you pick up a hitchhiker you're picking up an adventure Mm -hmm. yeah that's true I guess this person is on an adventure you want to share in it you know and and when people like it sparks like that they'll stop anywhere Mm -hmm. there's no better place or worse place um that said a friend of mine hitched across the states Oh, probably 15 years ago, actually. And he said it was so hard because there it seems like hitchhiking is not a thing anymore. Fine, but I've, in my experience, you probably just can. Like I hitchhiked in Egypt, walked out onto this highway going through the desert. And like you've never seen a road where you least want, like where you least want to hitchhike, if that makes sense. Like a road that's. <laughs> Like, you just want to get out of there. It's, oh, man, it's scary. It's the Arab world, you know. It's, ISIS is all around the place, apparently. Nicest people, you know, pull off anywhere. You end up having coffee with this dude and, you know, it's, you know. I think it's it's, it's easier to hitchhike in the Middle East, actually, probably, because the, the hospitality towards foreigners is so high uh, and right. people are just so curious and they want yes, to welcome yeah. you to their country. And yeah, I'm not surprised mm. you had a good experience there. To wrap up, um, so mm. you, you mentioned your, so your most recent film is coming out, you said January? Yes. Yeah, it's um it's called Diamond Status. Um and it'll be out on Amazon Prime. Should be in January. Okay, awesome. 
Mm. And what are you working on right now? Anything film you're writing the sequel to your first novel. You said yes, a year um, and a half you've been working on it. Yeah. Um, but film wise, are you film wise? I am not yeah, I'm not currently working on anything. I've just two things I'm involved in have come out quite recently. The first is one piece which is uh, doing very well. It's it's huge and beautiful. It's the adaptation of the longest-running manga series ever. Um, and, yeah, I was so lucky to be a part of it. I ended up, unfortunately, the way the live adaptation was written, my character only had a brief appearance, but I am playing a very big character in the world. Don Krieg is one of the Pirate Kings. Um <clears throat> And so, yeah, I'm just so, it's just so cool that I'm a part of it because it's such a great show. It's really, I think, groundbreaking in comic book adaptations. Awesome. They've somehow they've just nailed it. And um, I'm also in uh, Warrior, which is an HBO series. Um, it was the vision of Bruce Lee. He was working on it the genesis of the idea and um in the last few years his unfinished work was taken up and the and the show was made and essentially it's the story of takes place in san francisco in the late 1800s and it's it's kind of i describe it as like a kung fu game of thrones so there's various factions there's the chinese immigrants who have formed various gangs and they have their various leaders and then there's the Irish cops, and they're like a gang unto themselves. And then there's the politicians and the power brokers and the industrialists, mm. and everyone's sort of fighting over their piece of pie in San Francisco. So it's literally this, you know, kung fu saga. Cool. Um, which, yeah, I'm also that's also pretty amazing that I'm a part of it. But what's happened is the the writers and actors strike in the states has um, shut everything down. So, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess I forgot about that. Yeah. I was I was um I was to be involved in a a, a Viola Davis movie. Oh, um wow. can't say really, I suppose, too much more about it. So we're supposed to start shooting in this well, last month in August, but uh it's it's been postponed. So we all all the talent, all the crews in South Africa, we all just sitting waiting for the Americans oh. to Okay. Figure shit out, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you uh, filmed abroad before? You you basically don't no. have to go anywhere for work. <clears throat> so much in South Africa. Yeah, that's the I'm I'm I've, I exist in a beautiful little loophole mm -hmm. where um I know I mean it's <laughs> I've had two experiences where <laughs> I was in a movie called Tomb Raider, <laughs> uh, uh, and. I hear that they need to reshoot a few months after we've we wrapped. And so is my passport in order? We're going to London. You're going to be there for six weeks, like get ready. And then so very exciting. And I and then I discover that what they're going to reshoot is the section just after I died. Oh no. Well, you can literally <laughs> see my body <laughs> in the scene. But so I didn't end up getting flown over for that. And I've also had commercials. Uh, are you prepared to come to Berlin to be the lead in this car commercial? We know it's over Christmas. 
Will you be okay with that? Um, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I would love to go to Berlin and film something and then just fallen through. So no, I haven't filmed abroad, but yeah, what you can just be in Cape Town and, and a lot of stuff comes your way. Do, a lot, do most of your characters, uh, at least in film, get killed off? I'm just thinking of like Tomb Raider, Resident Evil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at least a couple have. I. It's rare that my guy survives. Eh? <laughs> but you're the bad guy a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's just my look. I mean, you discover, okay, this is what works. You know, I operate on this kind of philosophy of my writing is um, where I put all the artistic integrity that I have. Mm -hmm. Acting is is this like privilege of a job mm -hmm. that may or may not be something that I'm really proud of, mm. but always it's the most awesome experience ever. Yeah. And it's very well paid and it doesn't take too much time. So I have time to write and I'm just so lucky that I happen to look like some kind of ruffian viking type yeah <laughs> I mean, once again it's got nothing to do with me you know i just ate food <laughs> and uh so i'll take it you know it would be nice to to maybe play different kinds of roles but at the same time i work fairly often and i make a living yeah. and that's like uh, that's pretty amazing yeah no it, it is like especially yeah because writing is a is a long game like writing mm. novels anyway so yeah yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, and social media wise, you're on Instagram and Facebook. Um, so I will include um, include these in that'll be great. Yeah. Episode. Yeah. Thanks. And um, you can you can uh, check out my books at uh, pilgrimspressbooks.com. Okay. But even simpler, if you type in miltonshaw.com, it'll also take you there. Um, so all the information about my novels is up there and all, you know, current activities and all of that. Awesome. I'm, I will put that uh, website in as well. Great. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks, Milton. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Milton, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can find me on Instagram at roguechemist underscore blog and on Facebook at roguechemist. My travel blog is roguechemistblog.com.